Hello, in this episode we're exploring the wonderful world of the mixed hedgerow. Also with a wee story to share that we recorded yesterday while sitting in the garden joined by House Sparrows Aplenty where we're curious about an 18th century coaching inn in Dovenby and later we continue our mini-series concerning the connection between Macbeth and Go and the Lords of Allerdale. Can you see the trees growing, growing from the ground? Welcome to We Are Curious Cumbria, a community podcast exploring the connections between people, place and nature over the passage of time. You're listening to my friend and neighbour, Mark. And my friend, B. So I've got a, a fairly large garden come orchard. It's organic. I mean, that is, I don't use any chemicals or peat-based stuff, fertilisers, that kind of thing. The grass is long with mown pathways. It's not everyone's cup of tea, but I love it. And it's good for biodiversity, right? I love it too. And you're right. It's a great garden for wildlife, for birds, bees, butterflies, moths. We see a lot, don't we, of, shall we say, manicured gardens. And we need to change our mindset as to, for example, dandelions and other so-called weeds. It's actually fairly simple anyway, isn't it, to keep a garden like yours in check so it remains natural and relaxed. What else can I do to encourage biodiversity, to encourage pollinators in my garden? I'd suggest forget about replacing your run-down fencing. I'd say, instead, you can plant a native species mixed hedge. Hawthorns, say, blackthorn, beech, holly, field maple. This year's National Hedgerow Week, Monday 8th May, Sunday 14th May, focuses on promoting healthy hedges. The, the event raises awareness of the importance of the hedgerow, so crucial to biodiversity, as well as the hedgerow being essential in fighting climate change. The inaugural National Hedgerow Week was 29th of May to 6th of June in 2021. That was led by the Tree Council and Partners and it sparked a UK-wide conversation about hedgerows. So I sat in for an online event recently which was all about hedgerows. The event was hosted by CAFS, that's Cumbria Action for Sustainability, Cumbria's Climate Change and Sustainability Organisation, a charity largely funded by grants and doing great work. The online event was about climate change mitigation measuring carbon sequestration in hedgerow biomass. The University of Leeds worked with five farmers across the Eden Valley in Cumbria, and the farmers were participating in a private agri-environment scheme where they were encouraged to plant hedgerows as part of that scheme. Recent documents have outlined planting goals for hedgerows to contribute towards climate change mitigation. In 2018, there was the Climate Change Committee Land Use Report, which 
outlined that we need to increase hedgerow length by about 40% in order for it to contribute to climate change and net zero targets. That 40% increase represents an additional 200,000 kilometres of hedgerow, which is about half the road length of the network in the UK, so it's very ambitious. The Climate Change Committee report has an interim target of a 20% increment by 2035, which represents half the length of hedgerows that have been lost between 1984 and 2007. Then a report came out in 2020 by Natural England, an even bigger ambition of planting 300,000 kilometres of hedgerows. The University of Leeds have been researching how much CO2 can we sequester by planting 40% more hedgerows. Tell me about carbon sequestration. Carbon sequestration, it's the removal of carbon dioxide from the air, plants, hedging plants and trees store carbon in their woody parts and biomass is basically organic material, any type of organic matter. So when we talk about biomass in the context of generating energy, we're talking about wood. So the event talked about latest reports by the likes of Natural England, as I've mentioned, and a report by the National Farmers Union. The NFU are talking about the ways in which agriculture can help achieve net zero, how, for example, farmland can help increase carbon storage. And of course, planting hedgerows is one of the components of that because there's an urgency around climate change mitigation, a real urgency. At this online event, we were shown a graph, we were shown lots of graphs, of hedgerow planting since 2004 within agri-environment schemes in England. So between 2004 and 2022, just over 5,000 kilometres of hedgerows have been planted, almost all of that on improved grassland and arable fields. It's not just hedgerow planting that's contributing towards increasing hedgerow length, but restoration such as gapping up. Gapping up of hedgerows in that period represents about 30% of all hedgerow planting in the last two years, which is really significant. Farmers are carrying out private hedgerow planting as well, and there are other schemes, but in comparison to agri-environment schemes, they're much smaller. Hedgerows are extraordinary, aren't they? All that Biodiversity, berries, pollen, birds, bees, moths, butterflies and moisture management. Hedgerows sift material in a flood. They slow the water down. They provide shelter and shade. They provide browse for cattle. They link habitats with one another. At this online event, Pete Leeson from the Woodland Trust was inspirational to listen to and he talked about one farm run by Mark and Jenny Lee in Trapenna. Mark and Jenny Lee's farm in Trapenna is an exemplar of a regenerative farm In the last decade, they've taken a farm of around 200-250 Holstein cattle. High milk yields, but very demanding cows, lots of feed, lots of fertiliser, lots of energy and input. And they've moved to a herd of around 150 cattle, all native breed mixed cattle, that are now entirely fed from grass on the farm. So their farming operation isn't so intense or intensive. And at the same time, the farm has gone organic. They've taken their ryegrass, which is so demanding of nutrients, fertiliser and so on. They're now doing multiple lays of chicories and clovers and mixed grasses of timothies of natural grasses and herbs they're grazing the animals entirely on pasture and they make cheese butter and ice cream what's there not to like yeah and mark and jenny have planted over five kilometers of mixed hedgerow we talk about planting trees for posterity what's the legacy insofar as hedge management goes well we need hedge layers Uh, a traditional skill. We need young farmers, we need coppices, woodland managers, we need gardeners to plant hedges, not fences.
So we're sitting in the garden, suffice to say it's not raining, and the songbirds and the corvids and the doves and the pigeons are all busy. We want to share a really nice story with you, something that happened recently, though the story begins a couple of summers ago, when I was researching the parish and came across a newspaper piece. The year is 1781. The newspaper is the Cumberland Packet and Wares Whitehaven Advertiser, Cumbria's oldest newspaper, established in 1774. One William Archer, a former officer in the Cumberland Militia, opens an inn in Dovenby, just three miles from where we're sitting now. The inn was called the Hairy Cap, and it's quite possibly still there under its present incarnation, the Ship Inn. Notice is hereby given to all civil and military gentlemen, to all merchants, tradesmen, mechanics, etc., and to all gentlemen tinkers, beggars, chimney sweepers, etc., that the ancient house formerly kept as a public house by William Archer, the business of which has been discontinued for 20 years, will be opened again by a grandson of his of the same name. On Tuesday the 6th of March, 1781, at 6 o'clock in the morning, the cellar doors will be let wide open, the bottles will be broached, the corks drawn, the hairy cap will be hung out. Not the sign of the hairy cap, but the real hairy cap. Come my merry lads and lassies, let us march boldly to see the hairy cap, to eat good beef and drink strong beer. The tinkers and such like gentry will have a separate apartment 520 yards from the headquarters. The apartment appropriated for the reception of the beggars, tinkers, etc., is at Dovenby Beck, adjacent to an old corn mill and adjoining a schoolhouse where there is a diligent master with whom they may have an opportunity of hearing prayers twice a day. Success to the hairy cap! What struck me about this advertisement or announcement and others that followed by William is the style in which it was written, quite unlike any other advertisement for Nin I've seen in the newspapers from that day. I think that William's character comes across. He wrote these advertisements and announcements himself. What comes across is his humour and his forthrightness. Mark, what can you tell us about the Cumberland Militia and is the hairy cap part of the uniform from that period? The Militia, according to Cumbria County Council, were a defensive force of able-bodied men balloted from the lists compiled annually. Uh, obviously there's a bit more to it than that. Uh, the Militia was originally introduced at the time of the Restoration as a non-political part-time military force um, which could be used to stand up against tyranny and defend against a foreign invasion. Uh, they weren't particularly effective in that role during the uh, Jacobite uprisings and so in uh, 1760 they were kind of souped up and this would have been about the time that William joined. Um, they normally did sort of three to five years service. In the case of an officer like William it would have been four to five years uh, and then he was supposed to have been replaced by someone. That often didn't happen, so he could have carried on doing it for years until about the age of 45, and he's over 45 when he opens the pub. The militia were normally used in a law enforcement role at that time, um, which meant that they were deployed away from home so they wouldn't have to uh, deal with people they knew. And they were often um, billeted in public houses. So. The role of the inn, and there was also a place he later refers to as the outpost, could have been used to put up uh, visiting militia. I think he probably enjoyed himself because as an officer it would have been more like a sports club. We're talking the days when sport meant hunting, shooting and fishing. And it's interesting that when he dies 40 years later, he still calls himself, or on his gravestone, it says Captain William Archer. As for the hairy cap, um, I would assume that that is 
the, the hat they wore, which it would have been a tricorn type hat. Is that like a pole dark? It's like a pole dark hat, yeah. Uh, and they were officers' hats, posh hats, were usually made out of beaver hair, made into felt. Um, the cheaper versions were made out of wool. But again, uh, back in my days of military service, we had woolen shirts which were referred to as Hairy Marys. So fast forward to this year and We Are Curious Cumbria are planning a small audiovisual exhibition. Who lived in a parish like this, 1714 to 1914? And part of that exhibition will include an audio timeline. Wouldn't it be great, we thought, to ask a parishioner we know who could very well be related to William to record one or two of these advertisements that William took out in 1781. You've already heard one. Here's another. I've been told, my good friends, that some sceptical folk, a few half in earnest and others in joke, think proper to doubt that my last publication, which conveys to the public the true information concerning the hairy cap in. Do you see? This is a Val de Fries, not projected by me now, as this manoeuvre, if followed with spirit, would surely look off a great part of my merit. I've rallied my whole force of wit, which sometimes in parties, detached has been beaten up in rhyme, and with one coup de main, thus attacking his foes, the host of the hairy cap inn hereby shows. He can tell him his story in verse or in prose, nor think, though long tutored in Mars stern school, the soldiers relinquished to take up the fool. For though by forced marches continually stepping, twixt epping and healing, and ailing and epping, like heavy artillery brought up in the rear, the mules sometimes with vouchsafe to appear. And now as of old, I would have ye know it, the laurel adorns both hero and poet. This is truth, and if anyone offers to doubt it, repair to headquarters, and ne'er will dispute it. Well, as you've heard, the parishioner agreed to do that for us, and a couple of days into planning uh, exhibition we dug around in the archives and the genealogy sites so Mark and I visited St Bridget's churchyard in nearby Bridekirk and we were able to tell this parishioner that he is indeed related to William. Yes William is his great 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 that's four, four greats grandfather's brother and William was also the uncle of Joseph Archer, who was, we think, the first landlord of the Ship Inn, which still exists in Dovenby. As well as being a farmer and a landlord, Joseph was a ship's victualler responsible for the ship's supplies, especially food and drink, hence the name, we think. And William's great-nephew Humphrey, the great-great-grandfather of our parishioner, was the landlord of the Queen's Head in Deerham, which is now a private house. Who would have thought, said our parishioner friend, that I would be sitting here recording the words my ancestor wrote over 250 years ago. So in the last episode, we learn that Macbeth is down but not out, referring to the Battle of Dunsinane. And we're certainly not done exploring Macbeth, are we? But today you're going to talk. Do you want to summarise what's happened so far? Well, yeah. Um, so obviously in Macbeth's play, we've got we've had the naughty king, or 
Macbeth, who's killed good King Duncan, and he, he becomes the king, assisted by his naughty wife. Uh, and then he ultimately gets his comeuppance with this invasion from Seward, and Macbeth is killed by the Thane of Fife, um, Macduff. Uh, and that's pretty much, and they install um, Malcolm, um, who's the son of Duncan, as king. And that's pretty much it for the play. The reality is that um, Macbeth isn't killed. Uh, he's defeated, but he remains king. Um, they don't take all the uh, territory from him. Uh, he has to relocate north, and uh, his power is limited. Um, and he carries on living for a few years. Uh, Seward, unfortunately, dies not long, well, within a year. So we're going to talk about old Seward. Remind us who Seward is and why he's relevant to our mini-series about the Lords of Allerdale. Well, Seward was the Earl of Northumbria, and, and before that he was the Earl of York, and, and he brought them back together again, as they had been under Uhtred the Bold. But one of the things about Seward was he realises the importance of Cumbria as a buffer zone between Scotland and England, and... Um, he's quite important in creating what Cumbria actually becomes. So Seward, um, one of the things we know about Seward, well, obviously he died, He dies about a year after this battle, uh, and that's recorded in um, the Historia Anglorum, um, which is the Henry of Huntingdon version. It's Henry, Hunting, Henry Huntingdon, uh, who lived... Round about 1084, died round about 1155, was a churchman, wasn't he? A, a historian, a chronicler. He gives quite a good account of um, Seward's death. Um, he gets dysentery, unfortunately, possibly as a result of the campaign. And uh, he has a fairly unpleasant death. And as he's dying, he wants his servants and family to strap him into his armour and... Um, give him his battle axe so that he can die with honour, as it were. Now, bearing in mind this guy's a Christian, um, that's very much uh, a sort of pagan uh, Nordic way of dying, so you'll go to Valhalla, which is quite interesting. Obviously, he does have a Nordic background. Uh, another um, historical uh, text which gives us quite a lot of information on uh, Seward is the Vita Waldivi, which is um, essentially the tale, the story of the life of his son, who becomes a saint, Saint Walthoff, who is another interesting person. Um, but uh, yes, in this, it's although it's written in Latin, it borrows heavily on the kind of style of a Nordic saga. So I guess a lot of them were an oral tradition, which they used uh, in the written text. So with this, we have... This is where Seward's gets a bit more exciting. They're useful stories, and we're forever looking, aren't we, for a ring, or, a ring or two of truth in them. But, of course, their historical accuracy has to be approached with uh, caution. Yes, that's true, but it's also one of the things that um, makes them fun. Uh, so if you look at the Vita Waldivi, which is the life of his son, Walthoff, who becomes a saint... Um, that says a lot about Seward, and it's done in a style which is very similar to a Nordic saga, which I assume that the person who wrote it borrowed from an earlier oral tradition 
to do this. Oh, tell me about the I love the polar bear story and also the dragon slaying story. Tell me about those. Yes, well, well, these are in the Vita World DV. Um, they tell us his ancestry, um, and according to them, his father Bjorn uh, was the son of a, a polar bear. God had allowed a polar bear to mate with a woman, a noble woman, uh, to of produce course. this special offspring. Uh, and it also gives uh, a kind of lineage to him, which is slightly dodgy, but it might be closer to the truth than you'd originally think. So it says that basically Sewer's father is Bjorn, son of Ulfius, who is son of Spratlingus, he's a son of a polar bear and a noble woman. Now, the historian uh, Timothy Bolton thinks that these are actually real people, uh, as in it, they're talking about Thorgil Sprackling, who's the brother of Bjorn. And uh, Sprackling's son, Ulf, uh, is, is a real person um, who marries Estrith, who's the sister of Newt. Um, Knut, sorry. Uh, so Ulf is actually the cousin of Seward, or Sigurd Bjornsson, as he's also known. Um, so that, although the, the names are kind of muddled up, it probably is a real family. So according to the Vito Waldivi, uh, Seward's on his way to England um, from Scandinavia and uh, on around the Orkney Islands he encounters a dragon which he slays and then later on he encounters a, another dragon in Northumbria which he also slays. So again you've got a lot of this um, Nordic Sagri type stuff. Uh, also he, he meets the King of England seeking his fame and fortune. This is where it gets slightly dodgy because the King is actually um, the king at this time is clearly Edward the Confessor, who, of course, doesn't even come to England until long after Seward is already Earl of Northumbria and previously has been Earl of York. Do you think that these, these fantastic stories, these saga-like stories, do you think people got to hear about them before they met the man himself in, in the same way that, you know, we have hype now around a film? I don't know. Uh, I think they're probably more likely to be created later on to, to make a, a person who's already quite an impressive character into more of a legend. Uh, certainly these, the, the Vita Waldivi is, is a good 100 plus years later. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's an interesting thing. It's, reputation is everything. But what these stories uh, do uh, in a useful way is if, even if they're not historically accurate, they tell us a lot about the way people thought yes, and lived. Yes, the culture. Uh -huh. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so to get back to Walthoff, who, who that story is really about, um, he's, again, another interesting person. Um, yes, tell, tell me about Walthoff. He, he is the Walthoff who becomes a saint. He right? is indeed the man who becomes a saint. Now, he is um, Seward's son by... Um, Aelfled, who is the daughter of Eldred, who is North of Earl of Northumbria, uh, who I guess Seward had married her because he was already lining himself up to be the Earl of Northumbria. Unfortunately, this guy gets killed and there's another Earl of Northumbria. But um, Walthoff is very much part of this. So you have to go back to Uhtred the Bold, who was Eldred's father. Uh, when he's killed at some date between 1016 and 1018, 
The person ultimately responsible for his death is a, a guy called Thurbrand, who is a powerful magnate in Yorkshire. And he's been um, an enemy, really, of Uhtred's for quite a while. In fact, Uhtred's second marriage, his father-in-law wanted him to kill Thurbrand. It was one of the parts of the deal. Uh, it doesn't happen, and it ends up that uh, Thurbrand ultimately kills Uhtred. Now, Uhtred's son, Eldred, eventually gets the chance, quite a few years later, to have revenge. And, and I guess there's a delay because at the time, Thurbrand is very popular or friendly with Canute when he's the king. But after Canute's death, um, Eldred gets to kill Thurbrand. And unfortunately for Eldred, Thurbrand's son, Carl, then kills him. They both get killed in 1038. <laughs> this is another death that needs to be avenged. And again, it's avenged quite a few years later. But it's Walthoff, who's the son of Seward, who finally kills Carl and his sons in what is essentially a kind of Game of Thrones-style massacre at the dining room table. And, and, and bizarrely, he gets away with it, probably because of who's the current king at the time. The ultimate irony here is that Walthoff is later executed to, for treason um, under a different regime, uh, you know, post-conquest. Ironically, he's married to Judith, who's the uh, niece of William the Conqueror. But he is implied in some kind of treasonable activity, which I don't think he took part in, uh, but I think he was aware of, and he didn't want to get his mates in trouble by telling anyone about it. And so he is uh, tried for treason and executed. Uh, and then sometime after that, miracles start happening where his body is buried and he becomes a saint. Do we have any information about his execution? Yes, we do, but I'll have to look that up. <laughs> <laughs> That's OK, we don't yeah. need to put it in. 1076, um, he's the only... He's the only uh, English lord, I think, who is killed by William the Conqueror. Where's Macbeth at this moment? In time? Macbeth is up north. Uh, I'm assuming he has retreated to his home territory. Murray. Murray, mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. But he's still technically King of Alba. Once Seward is dead, his position as the Earl of Northumbria doesn't go to Walthoff, who's, I think, in his mid-teens at this time. And actually, the person who gets the Earl of Northumbria title, etc., is Tostig Godwinson, who is the son of Godwin um, and also brother of one day King uh, Harold Godwinson. And you have, I know we can't talk about it too much now because you're still figuring it out, but you have a theory, don't you, about Tostig? I do have a, a theory about Tostig. Um, it's completely unprovable, and other people have talked about it, um, that he had plans to make himself possibly king. Um, as I say, it's completely un unprovable. Now, as we know from the Macbeth play, Seward is supposed to have put Malcolm, uh, as Malcolm Canmore, son of Duncan, uh, back in power as King of the Cumbrians, which is exactly what he does in the play. 
we, we know historically this doesn't happen. There's a, there's a delay. The, the battle's in uh, 1054, and Malcolm isn't actually crowned till 1058. Uh, again, we've got various medieval historians to blame for it, if, if you want to put it that way. John of Worcester, another 12th century historian, came up with that one. And So Shakespeare's not just making this up for himself. He's actually borrowing from what were many people thought was the actual history. Although, interestingly, the Anglo-Saxon chronicles do indeed have Macbeth defeated but not killed. Um, so, but the, so the mystery is who, if anyone, is this Malcolm who is put in charge? One of the theories is that Malcolm is a Cumbrian king or, or descendant of a Cumbrian king, uh, probably descendant of Owen Foll. Uh, and because of his name, they think that he's possibly yet another of Malcolm II's descendants via his mother's side. However, uh, Owen Foll has a few Malcolms in his family anyway, so it's quite possible. Um, but he's certainly not made a king of, of Scotland or Alba. Uh, he would be maybe a reasonable strong man in the area to prevent Macbeth coming further south in Scotland. The historian William Capel had an interesting theory that something like this had happened before, um, based on annals of Lindisfarne uh, and Durham, written in the 12th century. There's uh, a couple of references to Seward taking an army into Scotland at an earlier date, uh, about 1045-46, and putting a new ruler in place. Uh, and in, in one of those it says that Macbeth comes back and, and retakes his kingdom um, in 1046. Uh, and what Capel speculated on was that the the strongman or whatever he'd put into the position was in fact Duncan's brother, if if you believe he's Duncan's brother, Maldred, who is of course the Lord of Allerdale and uh, Lord of Carlisle and uh, father of Gospatric and, and many other people we'll be talking about later on. But again, other historians don't think that's the case. They just simply think that the dates were wrong on these uh, documents and they're just getting muddled up with the 1054 invasion from Seward. Finally, a couple of events happening in Bridekirk and Gilcruz parishes over the next couple of weeks. The Village Post, a community magazine based in Bridekirk Parish, is working with We Are Curious Cumbria on a campaign to survey all the public rights of way in the two parishes and produce a map. We've had one meeting already and loads and loads of interest. Nearly 60 people want to be involved. And there's a coronation party in Tallentire on Sunday the 7th of May, while over in Gilcruz there's a sports day on the green, followed by afternoon tea in the village hall. Monday 8th May, We Are Curious Cumbria and Gilcruz Social Fund are collaborating. We're introducing the ancient custom of well dressing to the village and we're dressing for the wells. We have a plant sale of herbaceous perennials, we have strictly come maypole dancing, we have Belfagan Morris dancers and all women's side of dancers that have been dancing together for a very long time. And in the local, the Mason's Arms, there's a craft fair featuring the work of some of our dearest friends. On Sunday, 14th of May, 
We Are Curious Cumbria are hosting a one-day-only exhibition in the Village Hall. Who lived in a parish like this, 1714 to 1914? Free entry. Donations are, of course, most welcome. Thanks for listening. Please get in touch with any questions or if you'd like to be a guest on our podcast. Our studio managers today were Molly Leckenby and Alfie Davis. <laughs>